But I was thinking this morning, and it's kind of fitting, uh, one of the, the theologians I, I have a lot of respect for and have read a lot of his work is a guy named Leonard Sweet. And Leonard Sweet, every time he preaches, he begins with this. He goes, welcome saints. And everyone's like, oh, you know, and he goes, and welcome sinners. He's like, oh, okay, I didn't like that as, mu- as much. But I say that this morning because if you were here this morning, either you are a saint because you decided to go to church, or you're a sinner that needed to go to church. I don't know which one it is today, but one of them is probably true for us this morning. Um, but we're glad you're here this morning. So I, I was thinking most of you would never say that when you think of me, you think, man, that guy's so funny. I'm not that funny, right? Like, I'm, I'm not, I don't have that great a sense of humor. I'm not good at telling jokes. Like, I, I purposely don't write jokes to tell in sermons because they're bad. And you're like, oh. Um, like, I'm, I have such a bad sense of humor that, like, my kids would get those joke books and they would read the joke books, and they'd be, like, crying, laughing so hard. And I would just kind of, like, grin. Like, okay, cool. You know, like, so if you said, oh, I do, I think that Aaron, I think he's hilarious. I would actually question your judgment in terms of humor. But there's one joke I told as a kid all the time. And I'm not saying it's good, but I am going to tell it right now. So here's the joke. Right, so um, this little boy goes to school, and he's in kindergarten, and his teacher says, hey, you need to learn the first three letters of the alphabet. And so he goes home from school, and he goes to his brother, and he says, um, hey, what's the first letter of the beginning of the alphabet? And his brother looks at him, and he goes, shut up. That's what brothers say to brothers, right? So he goes, okay, thanks. So he goes into his mother, who's in the kitchen cooking dinner, and he goes, mom, what's the second letter of the beginning of the alphabet? And she goes, oh, my buns are burning, my buns are burning. And she goes to the oven, and, and so he goes, okay, thanks, mom. He goes to his other sibling, who's reading a comic book, and he goes, hey, uh, what's the third letter of the beginning of the alphabet? And sibling's not ignoring him because that's what siblings do. And his brother says to him, you know, hey, uh, Superman, because he's reading a Superman comic. So the next day, the little boy goes to school and his teacher goes, okay, what's the first letter of the beginning of the alphabet? And he goes, shut up. She goes, do you want to go to the principal's office? My buns are burning, my buns are burning. He's in the principal's office and the principal looks at him and asks him this question. Who do you think you are? Superman, right? Like, that's the best I got right there. It doesn't get better than that. Um, That's all I have. But here's why I'm mentioning that this morning, because that last question does matter for us. Who do you think you are? In fact, that question I was thinking about this week, right? Um, Not that my jokes are great, but this question is this. Where do you find your identity? What is it that defines you? In fact, what's the source of who you are? Here's the reality. All of us are shaped by our experiences, our relationships, our backgrounds, our circumstances. The reality is psychologists and sociologists are convinced of this, that for all of us, there is no way around the fact that our internal identity is shaped by things externally. Who we perceive ourselves to be is shaped by things beyond just what's inside of us. True for everyone, by the way. But this becomes the question, how will you and I answer the question, who are you? This question has radical implication on our lives. In fact, what we begin to find is how we answer that question impacts how we live our lives. As we've been looking and we'll continue to look all this year at the Gospel of John, we're still in chapter 1, verses 19 to 34 today. And we're getting to look at this idea that John, what we talked about last week, beginning of chapter 1, he says this, that through Jesus you can become known as children of God. By the way, that is an identity statement. 
to say who we are. He goes on to write in that text that we looked at last week is this, this idea that Jesus is the light and that in him there is no darkness and wherever he is, darkness cannot enter in. So there is, no matter how despairing we may feel or seem or think life is, that where Jesus is present, there is still a glimmer of hope always. And today, we'll continue to look at these verses from 19 to 34. And so John, the gospel writer, is writing. And remember, he's referencing a guy named John, John the Baptist. These are two different Johns. important for you to understand that. But here's what we find. And John is not writing about himself. He's talking about another guy named John. Here's what he says. Now, this was John's testimony. When the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was, he did not fail to confess, but confess freely I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen him, and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Now, this passage begins with this idea that these leaders are sent from Jerusalem, from the leaders in Jerusalem, go out to the wilderness to speak to John and find out why he's doing what he's doing. John lived in the wilderness. He was a part of what was likely known as the Essene community and the community at Qumran. It's just west of the Dead Sea in Israel. It's a pretty barren place. And for, so the fact that people would go there to see what John was doing is an interesting thing. He makes some pretty big assumptions, right? John the writer does in this text, because for most of us, we're reading this text going, okay, um, he's assuming you and I know the story, and here's what I mean by that. He's assuming we know who John the Baptist is and what he was doing in the wilderness, right? If you were to read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other three Gospels, they tell you what John was doing in the wilderness, but this John assumes you already know that story. And so what he says is this, that we would miss. Um, John is out there in the wilderness baptizing people. In fact, he's baptizing them for the repentance of their sins, in an hour day, this doesn't sound like that big of a deal. It doesn't seem like any big deal to us. But what John the Baptist is saying out there is this. It doesn't matter where you were born. It doesn't matter where you have come from. It doesn't matter the place you call home or what your birthright might be or what family you're a part of. None of that means you're a part of God's chosen people. 
It's about the status of your heart. And so this baptism for the repentance of sin, right, this had radical implication in their world because Jews didn't get baptized. They didn't need to. They were already a part of God's people. They do ritual cleansing, sure, but they didn't go get baptized. That was for people who were converting to Judaism from other cultures and other nations and other places, not for people who grew up in this place. But John the Baptist is going, hey, God doesn't care where you were born or what family you come from. It matters what is the status of your heart in relationship with him. Have you been made right? And so his line over and over again was this, repent for the kingdom of heaven comes near. And this is what he's out in the wilderness doing. And people are coming in droves to be baptized by John. And he's developed this group of followers that come and they are there with him. And so the religious leaders in Jerusalem go, hey, we've got to figure out what in the world is going on out in the wilderness. And so there they go. Their emissaries are sent out there and they go to John. And see, the people have been waiting this whole time for God to do something radically new. They've been waiting for God to show up. They've been waiting hundreds of years for God to speak in a new way. And the question is, is this the guy? Is John, the one in the wilderness, is he the one that we're looking for? I mean, this guy living this weird kind of life out there, is he the one that's to come and to speak and to set the world right? And so they show up and they begin to question John. And John says this, what he knows clearly about himself, I am not the Messiah. I am not the one you're looking for. I'm not the one who's going to save God's people. That is not who I am. John knew who he wasn't. But by the way, knowing who we are not doesn't mean we know who we are. And they continue to question. They go, then who are you? Are you Elijah? And John's answer is no. Now, a little side note here for you and I, because we can read the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, Each of them record the same thing. They call John the new Elijah. In fact, Jesus himself references John as the new Elijah. John the Baptist himself doesn't. The reality for us in that is he just doesn't think that highly of himself. He, He cannot see himself in that role. It may be the role he is playing. It is the words that Jesus speaks about him that are true. But for, for John to put himself in the same category as the prophet Elijah, he can't do that because that's just a step too far. But they continue their questioning. And here's what we find in the text. Verses 22 to 23 says this. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. The gospel writer John here, as well as all the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, also record these same words that John the Baptist shared from Isaiah 40, verse 3. And so I'm trying to think how to help you picture this text. It was this idea that a king was entering in, and the people were called to go make straight paths for him, right? To make rough roads smooth, um, in our day, like context of actually today, it'd be like, go plow the roads and get the snow off because the king is coming. They were to raise up every valley and knock down every mountain or hill. They were to be lowered so that the road for the king to come was smooth. So John knows his role was not to be the one who was to come, but to point people to the one who was to come. This is what happened in the ancient world when any king would come to town The people would go out and make things ready for them to enter in. You would always put your best foot forward so you would make the roads right. Ancient roads were not great, and so it would take work, right? You can imagine what that would be like. And so I was thinking, what's something comparable? Well, on the road I live, right around the the corner of my house, there's a pothole that is there. 
And every six to 12 months, they throw a couple shovels full of asphalt in it. And about two weeks later, it's already out. Now, it drives me nuts because I, I run by there and I'm going, you know, if you just would, would take the time to fix this correctly and cut out a section of this and kind of dig it up, I don't know what you spend in asphalt, but you're just wasting your time. Every time you show up, you're literally wasting your time. It lasts two weeks and it's gone. I mean, they do it, especially when it'll thaw, they'll leave this big hole again, they'll throw some asphalt in, and again, it will not work over and over again. This is what happens, because the reality is patchwork is not fixing the problem. And that's what John the Baptist is saying to the people in the wilderness. All the patchwork is not fixing your relationship with God. To fix the road by my house, you have to dig it all out, get to the foundation, and redo the whole thing. And what John is saying is this, if you want to be in right relationship with God, the whole thing has got to be dug out, and you've got to fix the whole thing. Because just patchwork your faith, that is not enough to make you who God has called you to be. And so I was thinking what he's actually out there saying is this, that God wants to do a dramatic transformation in your life and in your heart. All of this because John recognizes that one who is to come is greater than he. He even uses this weird line to us. He says, I'm not even worthy to untie this guy's sandals. And you're like, well, one, who ties sandals? Right? Like, um, there would have been like the old school sandals that go up to your ankles that you would tie. That's how you stayed on. But again, roads were old and dusty and dirty and nasty. And so all the dirt and the mud. And they didn't really have septic systems the way we think of septic systems. So some of that would have been in the streets. And so, yeah, to untie someone's sandals was a disgusting job that no one really wanted to do. It was the job of a slave or servant, or you would do it for yourself if you couldn't afford either one of those two things. And what John is saying is this, that, man, this guy is so good. He's so worthy that I'm so unworthy that I can't even untie his dirty sandals because I'm not worthy of doing that. And here is the cool thing about John. John isn't even threatened by the reality that someone greater than him is coming. That doesn't threaten him in any way, shape, or form. In fact, what we find in, in a few chapters later in John chapter 3, he says, I must decrease so that he can increase. I must become less so he can become more. Can you imagine in our workplaces, like the wisest teachers and bosses and leaders, the wisest ones recognize they can't do it on their own. They have to invest in other people to empower others leads to greater benefit than doing it ourselves. And this is what John the Baptist is saying, like, hey, it's not about me. Like, it's about who he is and how can I raise him up to be the next leader? In fact, here's a line I think that matters whether you follow Jesus or not. Maturity is wanting to raise up the next person regardless of what it means for you. Maturity is willing to raise up the next person and I may be losing my role in raising them up because they might be better than me. But maturity is going, I don't care. Because it's the right thing to do, and I want to invest in them and then become all that they can be. But this brings us to the second half of our text today, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. 
And John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day. Right, it's considered the second day of Jesus' ministry, and the first was the day that happened before that we really have, don't know much about from John's particular story. But again, John is assuming we know some stuff that we don't find in his gospel. He's assuming we know the story in some way, shape, or form. And here is the story. Jesus goes out to the wilderness to where John the Baptist is baptizing. And he goes to him and he says, hey, will you baptize me? And John looks at him and goes, no. I will not baptize you because I know who you are. You're Jesus. You're the one I think God has sent. You're the one who is to come. I am not going to baptize you. And Jesus is like, well, I'm not really asking you. I'm telling you, will you baptize me? Okay, you should be baptizing me. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record the story. And so sure enough, John baptizes Jesus. And as he's coming up out of the water, the voice of God says to him, this is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Jesus, being faithful to who God is, enters into the waters of baptism. And when he comes out, the voice of God says to him, This is my son, whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. And John the Baptist was a part of that and can only begin to articulate in words that he come up far too short what that experience was like even for him. And this is why John the Baptist is saying, there is one who will come after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit or the very presence of God. Pretty cool moment. But here's the crazy thing for me that I've wrestled with a long time. Um, I don't know if you know this, but Jesus and John the Baptist are cousins. I have cousins. I actually have lots of cousins. I see them periodically. And one of them, I was thinking about this week in particular, um, right? He's a doctor. Like a medical doctor, the kind that does actually help people, right? Because um, there are other kind of doctors and people joke that they don't help people, but that's a different conversation. But, but he's the kind of doctor who helps people, like medically, and um, he has a master's in business administration, which he did while in med school. I mean, he's a pretty accomplished guy. Um, and, I mean, he's, you guys would all love him. Like this week, he, he took off work and he went to the Michigan National Championship game, so you all would think he's great because he went to that game. Uh, and he might even be a great doctor, but here's the thing. I will never go to him no matter what. You know why? Because I remember all the dumb stuff he did as a teenager. I remember in college that public safety, which is like the university police, right, chasing him. Like, I remember these moments. I am not going to him as a doctor ever. I don't care how good he is. I remember what he was like. I could tell you stories about other cousins. I won't, but I could. So this is John's cousin, Jesus. And he's willing to say, hey, this is the one who is to come. In fact, John was older than Jesus by just a little bit. And here's the reality. Even though he was older, he was looking up to him and going, yeah, I, I know who I am. But I also know who he is. And who he is is who you and I should all find ourselves drawn to. He is the one that is the Messiah. He is the one that's going to set the world right. He is the one who can set every person right he is Jesus, the one who invites us to know that we too can become children of God. He is Jesus, 
And no matter how dark our life might feel, no matter how dark it may seem all around us, that there is no darkness that cannot be overcome through him. This brings us back to three questions I asked earlier, and here they are. Who do you think you are? What is the source of who you are? Who are you? Again, how we answer these questions has a radical implication on our life and how we live. It impacts who we are greatly because you and I have to answer that question at some level. Who am I? And when we don't answer the question, we just think we're just going to figure it out in life. We end up not knowing who we are even more. This really is one of the greatest questions we all ask in life. Who am I? In fact, it impacts so much of who we are. Identity issues are one of the greatest problems we have in the world today. We don't know who we are. And here's what I mean. There's a study from USC done several years ago. And here's what the study said. While people in all stages of life can experience an identity crisis, adolescents, by the way, that's like 13 to 25, tend to be most prone A study conducted in 2015 found that 37% of teens were struggling with their identity. And 95% of teens reported that they had felt inferior at some point in their lives. Now that's geared towards teenagers, but what I would contend is it's true for adults as well. In fact, there are five signs that you're having an identity crisis, according to the Lucan Center for Psychotherapy. Here's what they said. Here are the five signs. If you are finding yourself in any one of these, you might be having an identity crisis. Number one, questioning your basic understanding of who you are. Number two, feeling anxiety, agitation, or dissatisfaction with life. Number three, changing yourself to suit any environment, situation, or relationship. Number four, trouble answering questions about yourself. Number five, not being able to trust that you can make good decisions. Probably, if we're honest with ourselves, everyone in in this room at least has wrestled with one of those things. Maybe not today, but definitely in the last several years. Maybe in the last several minutes. Maybe in the last week. I I don't know. Maybe today. But these are the things that shape whether we're having an identity crisis or not. And so you go, why am I bringing these things up? Because here is what I have come to believe is true. We find our greatest identity, our greatest hope, our life's purpose, when we come to know that we are beloved children of God created in his image. When that becomes a central line of our identity, right? We'll leave it on the screen longer. If you brought your journal today, you can write in this and write this one down. This is probably about as good as it's going to get today. So... If you were waiting for something better, sorry, it's probably all I got right here. I'll say it again. We find our greatest identity, our greatest hope, our life's purpose when we come to know that we are beloved children of God created in his image. Remember what I said earlier about our identity? That all of us, our identity is shaped in part by things outside of us. It's true for you and I. You can say, well, I just, I determine myself. No, we've all been shaped by other things. But what would it look like if we recognized we were creating the very image of God and it's the love of God that was permeating into us through the person of Jesus? What if that became the thing that defined our life the most? For me, it's freeing to know the very Son of God loves me enough that he would say, hey, here's how far love will go, that even death itself is not enough to separate God's love from you. You are his beloved Son. 
And he says the same thing to you as well. You are my son. You are my daughter. You are the one I love, right? This is what John the Baptist begins to realize. He's one of my favorite characters in the Bible because he's kind of just like doesn't care what other people think at all. Like it's really kind of a cool thing. He could give a rip about other people. Um, and he's cool not because he ate locusts and wild honey. By the way, this week, one of our teenagers, hey, Riley, um, Riley ate bugs too because he finished last in fantasy football among the youth group. And so that was the punishment. He also ate bugs. So Riley's also kind of cool. Um, probably not signing me up for that. Uh, I did not finish last. So I didn't have to do that. Um, I was going to tag team on a team together. So thankfully we were not eating bugs because he would have eaten them and not me. Um, it's not because he wore, you know, camel's hair and a leather belt, although that's probably expensive today. Um, he knew who he was because his role, his purpose was to point people to Jesus. He knew that's what he was to do. He knew that's what he was to live for. And he knew that everything else didn't matter in relationship to that. That was his primary role in life, to pave the way, to make straight paths, to point people to Jesus, the one who was the light of the world, who would transform all people beginning even in our hearts. In fact, it's why John the Baptist, I'm sorry, it's why the gospel writer John, it's why he wrote his whole book. He wanted you and I to know, hey, here is who God is. Here is what God's up to. Here is what God has done in my life. Here is who I am. I'm going to point people to Jesus. It's the same passage we read last week from chapter 20, verse 31, which John wrote this. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. God wants you and I to know who we are. He wants us to know our own identity. He wants us to find our identity in him because here's the reality. It is shaped from things outside of us. But what, what if, because all of us have things shaping us, what if all of us have been shaped by various things in our lives that we don't have a lot of control over? But what John the Baptist is trying to get us to understand is this, that the one who baptizes you with the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God, can give you an identity that cannot be trumped. In fact, we can find who we are in light of Jesus we can find who we are in the love of Jesus. What if those were the things that shaped us? What if we began to find this is the reality for you and I? We can be so shaped by those things that it reorients our whole lives. John the Baptist, when he was talking to those who came to them, he talked about this idea that Jesus was the Lamb of God. Um, and so here's why that would kind of matter, because in the ancient Jewish world... Every single day, every morning and night, a lamb was offered as sacrifice at the temple. I know, weird, but it's what they did. That lamb was offered as a symbol of their freedom out of slavery, their freedom out of Egypt, their freedom, the exodus journey in which they had been slaves and now they were no longer slaves. And that lamb represented they had been freed, their deliverance. What John is saying to all those who can hear, he is saying this, those of you who want to know what true deliverance looks like, Jesus is the one who offers it. You don't need to go to the temple any longer and offer up a sacrifice. But what we can find is this, that God offers deliverance that can free us from the things that hold us in bondage. He can free us from our sins, our addictions, whatever holds us captive, whatever has captivated our heart that we know shouldn't have our heart. But it's only Jesus that can free us from the things that hold us in bondage, enslave us. Only Jesus can help us know who we truly are. 
Jesus comes to remove, in the words of John, the sin of the entire world to restore and make all things new. You know, earlier I talked about the road in which I live on, around the corner from me, in this, this pothole that drives me nuts. No matter how much I'm annoyed by it every time I drive by, or run by every single time, because I'm like, just fix the road, right? Like, that's what we all think. Just fix this. But the only way it's ever going to fix, they can keep dumping those shovelfuls of, of asphalt every six months, or every six weeks, whatever it is. I don't know. It, it seems like it's often. They can keep dumping that in, and it's going to keep filling it for a couple days. But a few weeks later, it's all going to come out again. I know this. The people with the shovel know this. But they do it anyway, Right? What it would take is you have to cut the road, you know, redo the foundation stuff a little bit, and then do it the right way, and then it'll last a long time. But, but what we find in this text is this. You and I all have potholes in our lives. We all have things that need to be made straight, roads that are not smooth, whether they're rocky or whether they've got valleys or whether they've got big hills. But there are things in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds that have helped us from having straight ways to God. And for some of us, those things, whatever they might be, addictions or hang-ups or whatever they might be, we, we see them, we know they're real, but we think, you know what, um, I'll just dump some asphalt on that. I'll just sprinkle a little Jesus in this. It'll be okay. I won't change anything about my life. I'll keep doing the same things and keep thinking it's going to get better. It never does, by the way. It works for a few weeks. It kind of holds together, and then something happens, and it begins to crumble and fall apart again. we begin to find when we come to know Jesus is this. He doesn't want to just throw some asphalt in some potholes of our lives. He wants to rip everything out to the foundation, to the very essence of who we are, to our identity. And he wants us to be able to answer the question, who are you? He wants us to live with a greater sense of purpose that we know we are God's beloved children, that we find our greatest identity in being his sons and daughters, that we come to know our purpose in this, just like John the Baptist. His purpose was to witness to Jesus what might happen if you and I witnessed to him as well. But this question is for you and I. What do you and I witness to with our lives? John the Baptist's life clearly pointed to Jesus. What does our life point to? What is it you and I live point to, but here's the reality. Jesus wants to set us free. He wants us to know our true identity as his kids. He wants us to know this, that he wants to empower us to be a part of his restoration and redemption of the entire world. And so you and I get to choose this day who we will follow. Who will be the greatest shaper of our identity? Who will be the one in which we find that that's central to who we are? And so it comes back to this question I asked early, earlier. Who are you? When you answer that question at the end of the day, when you're by yourself, or if someone were to actually ask you, who are you? Can you and I respond in the same way that we think Jesus could have responded in the moment of his baptism when he came out of the water? Could we say, I am God's son, or I am God's daughter, whom he loves? With me, he is well pleased. The only way you and I get to that place is to entrust our whole self to Jesus. To choose to find our greatest identity in him and nothing else in this world. So the question you and I are left with today is this. Who are you? Father, we help us this day as we wrestle with who we are. That we might find our greatest hope and our greatest identity in you. That we might find that 
Learning to live for you above all things would be what shapes us and molds us to become all that you have for us. Father, we ask today that you would help us to be the kind of people who have been so radically transformed that just like John the Baptist, we would bear witness to you and to your love and to your kingdom. And Father, help us to surrender whatever areas of our life we just keep trying to, trying to fix, but never fully surrendering to you. But will you make us from the inside out? Will you transform us? Will you help us to be set free, free from bondage, free from the things that enslave us, free from the things that hold us back? May we find above all else that we know we are yours. We pray this all in your son Jesus' name.